Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond, uh, and I'm exceptionally lucky because we don't have any repeat guests. I think you're the second ever repeat guest on the podcast, uh, but I'm joined by the wonderful uh, Brian Falchuk. Brian, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for, uh, I should say for having me on, but I did harass you into letting me on. So I, I pushed my way, <laughs> but thank you for for breaking your rules or making an exception. I appreciate it. Anyone that knows you, Brian, you're the nicest harasser anyone could know. Uh, it was a very polite ask. And, and no, we're really excited to have you on because um, it's a launch of your new book, uh, The Future of Insurance from Disruption to Revolution. This is volume three, The Collaborators, um, working together to move insurance forward faster. Um, and it's a book that you writ with, uh, alongside, um, or writ, wrote, <laughs> alongside David Gritz. Um, and of course, forward by the, the, the Queen of Insurance herself, uh, Sabine right. van der Linden. So yeah, I think we're, we're ticking off all the big insurtech names in one go there. I think um, uh, there's a few missing. We'll, we'll miss them we out for now. Nigel but... Walsh is on the back cover. So we get, like, it just <laughs> yeah. keeps, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the names keep, the names keep coming. Where, where's Matteo and uh, why haven't I got a review on the front cover? I think that's, uh, that, that's what comes I think next. it was, yeah. I think I was just afraid Matteo would say something really harsh about it. So I was just like, <laughs> I'll avoid that. But yeah, you never know. Um, yeah, we never know. We, we, there's, there's, there's still time. He still might. Yes. You never know. Yeah, yeah. So um, no, Brian, thank you for coming in. I think the reason I was so excited to talk to you about this book is, is, is I think collaboration and, and the evolution of where it is in within the InsurTech um, spectrum means that this is such a important time uh, to talk about this kind of issue. Yeah. Um, and, you know, why don't we start, we normally start with introducing the business, but I think we should introduce the book and give it some context. And um, yeah, just give us a bit of flavor for, for the people that the as yet unreleased book. Yeah. What, what's in the included? In it. Yeah. So this is, as you said, it's the third book in this series that I've been working on called The Future of Insurance. And um, the point of the book series is really to sort of give inspiration and and a bit of guidance, a bit of, uh, I think, fun, to be honest, mm-hmm. to people who are kind of, um, you know, wishing for more, feeling like there's opportunity out there, there's better that we could achieve. And I feel stuck. I don't know how to go about that. We've been trying it. We're better than we were. But, you know, are we really where we could be? And I think um, it's been an incredible time in, you know, since lockdowns hit, Um for change in the industry, because all of a sudden people were forced to change. And a lot of those excuses were valid, but you couldn't stand by them anymore because you didn't have a choice. You know, you couldn't handle claims. You couldn't take new business. You couldn't anything if you insisted on, well, this is how we've always done it. Um, so that's that's the space that these books have been coming out in. And I, I was lucky to tell the stories of 15 different insurers uh, firsthand, you know, I sat down with the people themselves and heard from them and then wrote up my version of of what they told me in the interviews, um, legacy carriers, insure tech startups, because in either side of that coin, no matter where you sit in the industry, you know, old school, new school, or something else entirely, there's so much you can learn from what they did. And it may be a direct corollary to your experience, or it could be so different that it sort of breaks you out of the bounds of what you've been living in and starts to get you thinking more freely. Um, and even if they're a failure, there's still something you can learn from them or something you could take that, you know, bring it into your context, resources, your successes. Could that failure actually thrive with the backing of all that you have to bring to the table? So I just, I found it to be this really 
interesting and inspiring way to help push the industry. But what I kept hearing was, well, Brian, which one's going to win, the insure techs or the legacy folks? And and I think like it's a fun question, but it's also a silly question because there is no one side is going to win. And I've been trying to make that point all along. Um, what struck me is my own experience that I came from the legacy world. I spent 20 years in the carrier side. And then I went to the insure tech world, a solution provider, not an insure tech carrier. Um, but one side of me didn't win. You know, I mean, both did. And, and that's sort of the notion is what if we came together uh, and worked together? And we've been trying to do that as an industry. And I sold into the carrier space when I was at an insure tech. Um, it's really hard. And it's really slow and we mean well, and we want to get that ROI and we want to have the impact that we envision, but we all know how that ends up, right? It takes much longer than we thought, it's much more expensive. And uh, the ROI, the, the benefits case is never what was promised up front. And it, it's just like, what if we actually didn't have to have it that way? What do we need to change and uh, be honest with ourselves about to make that more fruitful? And that's really the genesis of of this third book is, Let's hear the firsthand stories that all of us live. Um, maybe I've got a few carriers who are willing to sort of open the kimono and be honest about what's going on, what went well and why, what didn't go so well. And in hindsight, we would have done this differently or you know, watched out for this pitfall. Um, and so how can we all take those lessons in and just do better and move the industry forward faster? Because we're putting a ton of effort in. Let's get the payback that we're, you know, we're intending to have for ourselves, our partners, our customers. Mm. I think that's um, there's so much resonance with me there because I think when I think about InsureTech and the way that we've defined InsureTech um, and Jonathan Crystal brought this up with me when I was interviewing him for the kind of VC um, snapshot that we took at InsureTech New York was that I, I, I made the phrase digital MGA yeah, and he said Alex is just an MGA. And, and I think, you know, when we talk about the new insurance companies that come onto the scene, you know, the Lemonades, the Hippos, et cetera, we're still framing them in an insure tech landscape and, and they're right. just carriers. They're just yeah. got a digital footprint. So when you when you frame it like that and then you talk about who's going to win insure tech versus insurance carriers, well, <laughs> no one on their own, because if the carriers don't exist, the insurance insure techs don't have a place to be in the world. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't exist. Um, but what's what of kind of I forget how many waves we're supposed to be on. I think we had wave one and then we were two or three. I, I, I've lost count of which wave we're on. But certainly, what I'm seeing is slightly more mature businesses or, or approach to businesses where collaboration seems to be absolutely key. Yeah. Um, but there's no playbook in how to get collaboration right. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where the sort of challenge seems to be. Yeah. Um, I, I think you're right. And I think it, it is a forced divide um, or we're forcing the labels on because it makes conversations interesting. Yeah. Um, but the reality is, ultimately, we're all in the same space. We're all working together. And what's going on in one pocket can be used by or benefited from in another pocket, especially if we come together. Um, there, There isn't a playbook for successful collaboration per se, but there's a lot of... Um, presumed playbooks, if you will, like a lot of people are like, well, this is how we do it. And, and I don't think they've ever stopped to wonder is, yeah, but how's that working for you? You know, how many projects that you've scoped out, you know, X amount of months or years are well beyond that. And so for you to keep coming back to, but this is the way we do it. Um, you're like, as the Brits would say, we're making a rod for our own back. 
um, because of that sort of dogmatic resistance to other approaches um, or recognizing, you know what, we may not know everything. We may not be the best at this. Um, what if we took the advice of this company that has, you know, a hundredth the years of, of experience that we have, maybe they know something different. Uh, and, and that's, I think if there's anything that, that I've taken from my own experience is humility is the single most important human value when it comes to leadership or, or success. Uh, and I think we need to bring that into, you know, into all of our collaborations as well, just because someone's new or their offices look funky, if they even have them, or they're wearing a Hawaiian shirt, like I've got under my sport coat, you know, I'm collaborating on the the clothing side. And of course, I'm collaborating on the hair side. I get the same haircut as you now. Um, maybe, you know, maybe these weirdos uh, actually know something too. And you know what I love, actually, when you talk about the waves, the first wave was was very like uh outsider tech heavy judgmental you know like oh these insurance idiots these dinosaurs you know they're, they're all going to die uh and we're going to be the ones to put them out of their misery the second wave whether we're in two or three but that that shift from the first wave really was about having the insurance expertise on board and i think that's what you see now more whether it's an insurer a digital mga or mga um, or a solution provider there's this recognition that actually the core fundamentals of insurance matter and it's very difficult. And it's not that these people are all stupid or dinosaurs. It's really hard stuff. And when you come in with that hubris again, hubris exists on both sides of the, the startup legacy equation, uh, you miss that stuff. So I think for all of us to just recognize there are better ways to do it. What if we just talked openly about that and we're willing to actually take those ideas in and try them? Mm. It's it's interesting reflection on my own business in that you know we're a I I came from the world of insurance and then I worked in recruitment for big insurers and then I worked as a search consultant in a small boutique business and then I moved into this insure tech space and then I I started out with that I'm going to sell you a search and a search for me was like 100 page document super detailed like review of all these potential candidates market mapping it's going to take me three months and then I'll deliver you some and now speaking to these startups going we don't want that at all you know we want we want the level of caliber you're talking about but we don't have that time and 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 i remember i had to sort of step back from my own ego and say okay i'm i have to listen to the customer for one and then secondly you have to go that these people might know something i don't because their experiences are different to mine because they were coming from tech fast moving tech there wasn't any time for that and so even in my own world, I think I had to adopt and adjust. And and like you, I had to adopt maybe a Hawaiian shirt rather than my kind of three-piece suit that I used to wear to everything. So yeah. I, I think even cultural, and I wanted to ask you about culture as well. And I, 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 I'm going to make sure I purposely go back to the book and the case studies, certainly in a second. But do you think that insurance is unique in its culture of collaboration? Because it's got a strange relationship with collaboration because it's inherently collaborative but then it also seems to struggle to collaborate with ciders and, and technology providers are we yeah. in a unique position there well i certainly think we think we are and from you know I, i've really only worked in insurance i've done a little consulting for my time at mckinsey outside but um then i was long to come back to insurance i'm just strange like that from what i've found pretty much every industry um thinks that all other industries are the same and they're the one unicorn. So whether we're truly different or not, I can't say. 
but it does feel different. And, and I, I love what you were just hitting on because I keep reminding people of this. When, when we get really difficult about our competitors and we can't share this with them because you know they're competitors, well, first of all, your rate and your form are all filed. So you know maybe not on the ENS side, but on plenty of lines of business, it's filed, it's publicly available. Second of all, um, do you use reinsurance? Every single insurer has reinsurance and most reinsurers have reinsurance somewhere in their portfolio, which means what you're doing affects your competitor and what they're doing affects you, not just from your open competition, but you know if you have heavy losses, it's gonna drive up their re-rates as well and vice versa. Um, so in a sense, we're all collaborative without even really thinking about it just from the capital base, but ultimately insurance is risk pooling and risk sharing. So that in and of itself is collaboration. And I, I think it's, it's funny, right? We, we are actually um, not the best collaborators in the world. We do get in a very, like, we know best, we can't talk about this secret sauce. You know, it's all in our loss history. We can't let anyone know that. Um, yet the very nature of our business is sharing. And I think if we try to get back to those fundamentals um, and then maybe act a little bit more collaboratively, you'd be surprised how well things can go. And I think it, it is about that sort of let's suspend disbelief, um, you know, kind of the art of the possible thinking. And um, there's one case in particular where the CIO sort of like stands up in this room of non-believers. And um, I'm sure it was less friendly than the way he put it when I was interviewing him, but was <laughs> sort of like, this software works, we're going to assume it works and it works out of the box. And I don't want to hear it otherwise. Like you have to live with it before you genuinely can't. You can't tell me before you've even tried it that it doesn't work. Um, and because so, they were trying to put something in without changing it, you know, because we all change it. We all customize it. Even when we say it's going to be, um, you know, a configuration, not customization. And the, that goes out the window instantly. Um, it, it really, that was like this huge culture shift for them. But he had to be a bit difficult, I think, and forceful up front. And after, you know, a few months of living that way, he's like, I couldn't get them to customize it now if I tried, because they've seen, you know, they get what they need quickly and it works well and it's supported and it gets upgraded. Like all of the exponential benefits that come from just that upfront, like, what have we trusted our partner? He's like, you have to just assume it works. And if you think it won't work, why did we select it? It's a really good point. We do this in contracting, right? Like we're contracting is a tough thing because it's sort of like preparing for everything falling apart because that's not the time to figure out how to sort it out but like before you've even started working together your biggest effort is this document that assumes everything was terrible and how do you sort through that um and so he's like you know we went into that with the presumption that the software would work and that it just changes the attitudes right off the bat but that's a tough change and you have to do that really consciously um, and actually like living that when it, like, it's one thing to say it, but when, when you're actually in the midst of contract negotiation, like, why are you angry with each other? You haven't even started working together yet. Like this is yes. like, we have a bigger problem if that's really the way things are going at this point. Mm. The CIO example, I really, I'm, I think it's really important because I think when you, when you're talking there, there's, they're saying something, and I don't know if this is one of the lessons is the support from top down, there's a C-suite support of collaboration yeah. and they're doing it in a really, you know, 
let's be honest, adults listen to this podcast. It's a no, it's a non-bullshit version of doing it. It's like you will adopt this technology, you will make it work, and I don't want to hear anything about it. And I I think humans are even the best change adopted humans are very prone. We like habit, we like pattern, we like pattern recognition. So everything is quite difficult, even for those that embrace that stuff. But the even the sort of minor three percent of people that really resist that change can really endemically damage an attempt at collaboration or attempt at change because that dissenting voice is is you know it, it's really uh powerful it's, it's it's viral in its nature in terms of kind of whether something's going to be adopted so having that top-down c-suite kind of approach is did, did you see a theme of that in in the sort of positive collaborations that it was yeah well, and it, um, so it didn't come out as a core lesson and it's not to say it isn't important, but it's because that in and of itself doesn't guarantee you success. Sure. And, and so we saw that, you know, in every case you see like, oh, there's great buy-in at the top. That's fantastic. Nothing wrong with that. But if it's just buy-in at the top with mm -hmm. none of the other kind of supporting, um, you know, mechanisms and, and norms in place, then it's worthless. And then people feel like, well, that guy's in his ivory tower has no clue what the front line's about or you know she's over here thinking everything's great because she shows up once a month and you know bought us bagels for one of the meetings and somehow that entitles her to tell us what to do what you found instead is it's about the frequency of the meetings it's about making really just pragmatic rational decisions um, even when they may feel like it's not what you wish you could make and in a perfect world you do something different it doesn't mean you always can uh, so there's something about the meeting frequency. And uh, in a couple of the cases, they were really clear, like we had to meet every week. They get like the C-suite of a multi-billion dollar, multi-hundred million dollar business together every week. Of course, everybody balked about that up front or they all went in with the presumption like, yeah, these will start falling off. We'll, we'll go to every other week, maybe once a month. But you find that as soon as you do that, then decisions take four or five months. Because, you know, the one the one time you did meet that month, you know, someone was off, they were out sick, they were on holiday, whatever it was. And so you couldn't make the decision. And so you get a punt to the next month, and then someone else was out. And it's like, this six month long or 12 month long project ended up taking three years, simply because we couldn't make decisions when we needed to. I, I, I'm seeing this with a, uh, a digital MGA that um, I'm working with where their fronting carrier, their capacity, um, keeps punting uh underwriting um underwriting committee decision because a key person's not there each time and it's a different person each time and it's been five months of this wow. and it's basically already been signed off but there's one niggling question and it's like well why don't you all get on email and solve it or you're all in the same office when you happen to be together could you not just speak mm -hmm. that's the kind of stuff that they have tons of of executive buy-in it doesn't matter because the structures of how they deliver that buy-in are totally broken. And that's what we need to get past. And, and they're responsible. This is when we meet. Mm -hmm. um, okay, but it's not working. So yeah. at what point are you willing to admit that? And, and I think that's where it's not just the buy-in. You have to recognize a lot of other things need to come along for the ride or the buy-in is ceremonial. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was I was suppressing a really painful laugh of a search I'm doing at the moment, which everyone has agreed to hire this person. But they only meet every X day to yeah. make a decision. So we have to wait for that day to then get the offer. And then the offer has to go out on the X day because that's the process you're thinking. 
yeah like, what are we doing here like like we've all agreed so um yeah sort of a process of processes sake is 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 well it's the biggest deal in I think in business um I wanted to I wanted to come back to you you mentioned about the case studies and, and that's yeah. the structure of the book you sat down with 15 different uh sort of case study example but I think is there five in the book is there five specific yeah, so there were 15 in the across the first two and there's five carriers in this one but it's five carriers wow. plus five solution providers um so there's a little bonus in there so there's 10 companies in this um and it's yeah, I mean, it's all firsthand. So I sat down with the insurers and with their partners, sometimes together, sometimes separate, sometimes both. And, you know, just heard like from that first interaction or when you first learned about this or first had a need for something to where you're at today, give me the nitty gritty, you know, mm-hmm. really the the play by play. And let's dig into those highs and those lows and see, you know, what uh, what drove the highs and when you hit those lows, could you have avoided them? Did you, you know, did you make those lows yourself? Yeah. Um, what have you put in place now to avoid that? And how's have you tested it? Has it worked out differently? And let's share all that. So as you can imagine, um, there's only five. There were more carriers in the prior books because A, not everyone likes to admit when things didn't go well. Yeah. Uh, and B, not every carrier, and I think this is a common thing for our industry, we don't like to say who we work with. You know, we, mm. if you look at like the telematics and usage-based insurance, pretty much all of those are branded as the insurer's offering. Yeah. Um, I struggle to think of any that were actually developed, created, and run by the insurer. Those tools, you know, the little dongles, the apps, they're all from third parties, um, but no one brands it that way. So if you were to admit like, oh, we did this with these guys and it's actually their solution, not everyone's comfortable with that. So mm. it's, it's tricky. Mm. Is it? I wonder if that says something about your sample pool that they're inherently probably better collaborators, better innovators, because they're prepared to sit down and talk about six wins or failures, you know, in, in the space. Um, uh, that, that might be too deep for this podcast. I'm not sure. I am. Um... <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it isn't. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a nice theory. I, so uh, I suppose, you know, not wanting to let anyone cheat, Brian, because, you know, they should, they should go out and buy this book and read this book, but, what's your overridingly i want to talk about kind of like take key takeaways in, in yes. a section but like how do we get better at calibration what was there was this just like if you had your strap my message for how yeah. do we do this so um I, i'm i'm a terrible book sales person because i i'm perfectly fine giving away like <laughs> of the book and and it's because i don't write the books to sell the books i write the books to try to help the industry and so if someone gets enough from this conversation fantastic if they want to get more detail they you know love that and i i think it's it's actually fun and inspiring to read these stories but the there are three major takeaways and i've hinted at some of them um you know through this conversation but the first is and i said this one in particular is make fast rational decisions um well you know that sounds obvious don't make irrational decisions but you'd be surprised um, the speed is critical. So, you know, how frequently are the decision makers involved and meeting and are you giving yourself credit because it's more frequent than it used to be? We used to meet quarterly and now we're meeting monthly. It's like, that's ah, still not good enough. Um, what do you actually need for this delivery? And so you've got, you, you just, you have to meet fast enough. Um, and you need to make the right decisions for the right reasons. And because we've always done it this way, or because we've never done that before are not valid reasons. Um, mm-hmm. 
why are you doing this project in the first place? And if you can't come back to the true value and purpose of that because of politics or insecurity or something else that isn't a better business outcome for you or your customers or your partners, then that is not a rational decision. So don't claim something's rational when it isn't. And you have to be really honest with yourself here. Um, and obviously, you know, lots of uh, examples and experiences in the book to speak to that, including somewhere they weren't making the most rational decisions. And they're like, yeah, you know, we were doing this for the wrong reason. And we saw that. And and here's what we did to, uh, you know, to, to change. Um, another one that sounds fairly obvious is be on the same team. And by that, I mean, between the startup or, or the insure tech and the carrier, it's not those people, that vendor, um, it's all you. And, you know, that same CIO, one of the things he said is, and he's spot on about this, you know, core system projects is what that one was about. We hire an SI, a systems integrator or consultant, or, you know, the vendor does it. And if things fall behind, it's like, oh, you know, that SI screwed up or we replaced the SI. And, you know, it's always like laying blame. Actually, what he said is you're the one who paid the checks. You're the one who signed the contract. It's you. doesn't matter if if like everything they did was wrong and nothing you did was was wrong. If you made the decision, it is your project. It's your responsibility. So this notion of a separation is false. And the more you reinforce that, the worse things will be. So get on the same team, be willing to pick up, you know, as if you're you're working for the same company. And I can hear the general counsels listening, saying, but hang on a second, employment law, you can't treat them like they're the same company because I'm not saying that. You don't have to start offering them benefits and you're not going to cross that line, I assure you. Mm -hmm. uh, but to to draw a hard line between us and them and to think of them as vendors instead of partners, even, um, I, I live that myself. You could see the stark difference and the projects where we were all working together were the ones that implemented faster, much more engagement, better outcomes, all of it. And the ones where it was, no, you're something different from us. We're not going to tell you everything. We're, you know, we're not going to put the effort in that we're expecting of you, vice versa. Um, those are the ones that didn't do well. So just be humans about it, right? Like it's your business. You should be willing to to just work together on it. I, I'm I'm going to soundbite you with that, Brian, and send it to every Please. potential potential client I have because because <laughs> where it goes really really well, we're part of the team. But that's yeah. the way it works. We are yeah. on board. We're doing everything. Where it goes badly as a vendor is exactly that. Like no information, right. otherized. You know clear definition between us and them not shared information and you know it's 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 a simple business what we do but it's this this the speed that you can do anything or or the success you can do anything is all based on kind of are you on the same team so it, yeah it might be might be kind of obvious advice but i don't think it's i don't think it's taken on board yeah um I can think of being on the receiving end of your work not you specifically but you know mm -hmm. other other search work and you could tell that something was being hidden and yeah. that, like it's gonna come out and so then i'm stuck with okay i'm now living with this thing that was not shared with me that's clearly part of the culture or the political dynamics i'm not happy about that you know the, the search folks would not have hidden that had they known mm -hmm. uh, but i can't say anymore it gets off <laughs> we'll but, talk about yeah. that when we see, yeah, see yeah maybe i'll find some time but then the, the last one is an interesting point because it's not, and look, none of these points is explicitly just between you and the third party, 
a lot of them go internally because we're collaborating amongst ourselves, different functions, you know, different operating units, what have you. Um, this one is really blatantly as much an internal thing as an external thing. And it's about respecting the lanes of responsibility. And this actually came from one of the, the startups themselves, Ben Akiva. It was like a founding principle for their three co-founders. It was important that each one of them has a voice in the whole business. So, you know, the CEO, even though he's not responsible for the tech, he has as much an ability to talk with the CTO about their technical decisions, but ultimately the CTO is responsible for the decision itself. And because they had that collaborative, open, respectful conversation where everyone is up here, the CEO and, and same thing for the CEO, they knew that they could stand by that final decision because they respected the process behind it and the fact that each one of them has their specific areas of responsibility that extended to how they go about their client interactions. And I saw this in some of the other cases as well. Um, you know, everyone has an area of responsibility and you need to respect that. And so that can be little things like, you know, one of them was talking about the clients sending them little mock-ups and wireframes for how the system should work. And it's like, that's very nice. Our responsibility is to design the system, the UX and, and all that, because that's our sweet spot. Yours is to give us the business requirements and your need as an insurance business that is trying to, you know, have this process complete, not to tell us like, then it has to go to Johnny because Johnny presses this button and that, cause that's how you've always worked. It's not necessarily the best way to do it. So tell us what business outcome you need, leave the wireframing to us, um, and that's not, it's not a rude thing. It's not about like throwing the wireframes back at them when they hand them to you, but it's about both sides understanding we each have a role to play here. We need a collaborative interaction, but ultimately the responsible party needs to be the responsible party. And the internal implications for that is, you know, there's a lot more um, corporate venture capital activity going on. And so in a couple of the cases, there were investments as well as customer or partner decisions. And you see where, uh, Nationwide was one of the investors in what became a partner of theirs, a company called Kinetic. And when they were trying to get Kinetic Live as an MGA with a, an IoT solution, there were some IT kind of roadblocks where Nationwide, a very large, complex business, they have procedures for how long it takes for systems to be spun up and to access to be given and that sort of thing. And the VCs could have said, look, we took balance sheet money, millions of dollars, put them into these folks. You're standing in the way. They have a go live date that you're putting at risk, you have to just make this happen. That would have worked. It would have worked once, right? It would not have built the right long-term kind of relationship. So rather than stepping on toes or pulling a balance sheet rank on them or going to the CEO or any of that, they said, hey, you know, we've made this investment. Here's why. Um, this is where they're at working with your team. This is a roadblock we're hitting. We know you have these processes for good reason. Is there any is there any alternative approach or other way that we could get through this so that their go live date could be supported? If not, could you help us think about other ways to accelerate to try to catch up for that? So it wasn't a like thou shalt or you know like you must do this because we're more valuable than you or more important or whatever or we know someone higher up than you do. Um, it was like, hey, here's what we're trying to achieve, um, and we know you're trying to achieve this could you help us kind of work through this? And what thoughts do you have? Like, let's be partners and recognizing mm -hmm. that's IT's decision. That's their responsibility. It doesn't matter how much money you have or how much power you have. You don't own that. 
So you can't just step on them and try to bully them into doing it. That's for them. But have that collaborative approach up front and you build a company of partners instead of people who are scared to work with you, hope you don't come knocking. Uh, you know, which one do you think long term is going to work out for the best? It's it's not the bullying approach. So there's a, there's a lot of that that comes out. And, and luckily, not through failures. You know, it's not like oh, we had scared everyone and they hated us. And so we had to fix our image. It was like, no, we, we knew up front we could not operate that way. Um, and that you see this all the time. Companies where I've worked at so many where IT is referenced like a person. You know, well, IT said this, or I, I'm like, who's IT? <laughs> you know, I work, you, I think, you know, I worked for British carriers for 10 years and yeah. I'm still waiting to meet London. It's like, well, London said in the US. I'm like, who is this London guy? He's terrible. I don't, I don't ever want to get to meet with him. Um, we have to stop that. Like, we just yeah. have to stop that. There's no person named IT. We, you know, we have to respect who owns what and work with them and not talk about them behind their backs. Yeah. There is a child called it though. So, you know. There is. And actually, there was a guy at one of the carriers whose last name was London and he was British. So I was like, I've met him. He's actually like really laid back. I don't think he's and then I realized, yeah, it's not him. London's on board. No, I think that's um that that it's that thing about trying to get people on board and and you well, we've said it before. We you know I I I made that point at the top. Yes, it's important to be supported by C suite, but you can't use hierarchy to force people into doing things as, as yeah. a sort of bullying tactic because because that's not collaboration they're not coming with you you know you're yeah. you're enforcing things and as you say once it's like it might kick start behavior yeah but unless everyone's on board it's not going to have the momentum these projects are not yeah i mean the timeline as well is is something that you've touched on is that you know the timeline for these businesses selling to a carrier getting on board and embedded with the carrier we do lots of kind of sales go to market type work with insurtech businesses finding them those sorts of staff and we're rarely talking about time scales that are less than 12 months yeah um yeah. what do you think that i just this is, a, this is a, something that's come up what, what do you think that means from an actual vc perspective and you know, so something we've noticed is the, the increasing prominence of the CVC space. Do you think yeah. that's a natural kind of reflection of just how difficult it is to get traction in this space? Yeah, I think it is. Um, I was I was lucky to sit on a panel just this week as we we're recording this with uh, a friend of mine from business school, and she's she works at one of the the top VCs in the space. Um, and she was commenting on how you know she talked about I think two three waves, two waves, whatever she's talking about. Same same question. How many waves? But the first wave, not only was it a lot of tech outsiders, the money was outsider as well. And I saw this. I, I worked at a firm that their Series A was led by a fantastic VC with an incredible track record. They're behind you know, very much everyday brand names that we would all know and, and respect. This was their first insurance play. And the partner was brilliant, great guy. I had so many wonderful ideas that were so many horrible ideas for insurance. Yeah. And, and that's the problem. Like he meant well, but he's from a B2C, you know, like everyday brands, you know, definitely B2C, a lot of direct kind of business. So he's like, what if you let um, adjusters pay with their corporate card for the solution? And then like, and that's how we get in because that bar would be really low. And then the head of claims would be like, oh, wow, that's fantastic. Let's give it to everyone. I'm like, no, they'll fire the adjuster. They, like they will not use us. They'll never use us. They'll fire the adjuster for doing something so bold and putting, yeah. you know, compliance at risk. And rightfully so as a former head of claims, it would yeah. have pained me, but like, 
that's a fireable offense if they actually did that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he like he wouldn't have known any of that. And he meant well, but that's that's sort of ignorant money. Um, and I don't mean that to put them down. It's well intentioned. And you saw this in dot com as well in the late nineties. More recent money is much more insurance knowledgeable and specific. And by extension, I think CBC also ends up filling that gap. And um, I think the CVCs have evolved. You know, a lot of them came in later stage. It would often be after they were already a customer and the the business was thriving. So it tended to be kind of growth stage investments. I've seen a lot more CVCs who are now thinking about seed or even some that are thinking pre-seed if the strategic alignment is there. And that's that's new. So my take is always, if you can get informed capital behind you, that's much better. And I, I have seen a shift there. And, and I think um, the CBCs are playing a part of that, which is fantastic. They should. Yeah, we 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 used to sort of, not we didn't steer clear of CBCs. They just weren't as prominent. So we didn't see them as often, whereas we were interacting quite heavily with VCs and working with their portfolio companies. I think you, the observation I would make is that even in this sort of prominence, the CVCs are at more events, they speak, they're more, they're more public. And then also the complexion and the size of the CVC teams, they've invested in those teams, they have different people in those teams. And, you know, we were talking to, this is very rude, but the name escapes me, but, but someone who joined the um, QBE team and, and yeah. came from a pure tech side of the fence but they were bringing that in-house to complement their very good knowledge of insurance corporate venture capital um and i thought that was an interesting play so they're making their team more robust that they can look at more options and things like very early stage pre-seed seed seed investments so that's interesting um you made a comment and and i'll I'll make this last couple of questions otherwise we're overstake i'll welcome but you made an interesting comment that we were talking the other day about the relationship between VC and underwriting and how it's like a mirror image. And I just thought that was a really good, I just thought it was a really good point. So I just wanted to kind of dig that up again for the, for, for the, for the audience that are listening in and your observation there. Yeah. Um, it struck me the other day, uh, the other day, like several months ago, I was giving a talk on innovation for a group of carrier CEOs. And they were really feeling stymied about how to get innovation kickstarted within their orgs. And they'd put money behind it and put people behind it. But like so many of us that have seen innovation teams, it's like it gets so far, but then it never really gets into the business. Yeah. And so they, they wanted me to speak to kind of what are the barriers to that? And one of the things that struck me is, um, you know, I've worked with a bunch of VCs as well. And so if you really think about it, underwriting in a carrier or looking at investments as a VC, it's the same analysis. You're looking at the risk of failure um, and success, but for a VC, I won't, I won't say they don't care about failure because if they know something's going to fail or they think there's a high likelihood, they're not going to bother with it. Mm-hmm. But what they're trying to do is not avoid the losses. They're trying to find the really big winners. You know, they'll get a couple singles, doubles, triples, but they're looking for the home runs or the grand slams because they only need very few of those. And that will make the whole portfolio. Their downside is capped. You put in a million bucks, it goes to zero. Worst case scenario, you've lost a million dollars. But if you put a million dollars in and it goes to 18 billion, well, you can make 1.8 or 180 million. I mean, many multiples of that million. So the upside is, I wouldn't say uncapped, they're bounds to it, but largely look at the underwriting side. It's completely the opposite. Mm-hmm. Best case scenario, 
is your upside is premium minus commission and expense. So $100,000, maybe 40,000, like mm -hmm. total upside from this effort. The downside, it could be uncapped depending on the line of business, but realistically five mil limit, three mil limit, two mil. So your, your $40,000 potential upside is countered by a $5 million potential downside. So we're looking at the same thing. We're trying to evaluate the risk of failure and the potential of success. However, the, the insurers are trying to avoid the downsides, whereas a VC is only trying to spot those few winners and is not really bothered by the downside as much to an extent. Mm -hmm. But effectively, that's not their, their worry. It's about finding those rare super winners. So we're both evaluating risk, but in completely the opposite dimension. And- I, I say this to like new parents is everyone warns you about sleep deprivation and you're like, Oh yeah, I understand. You know, I've, I've had rough nights of sleep before I've not slept for several days. I get it. And then you find yourself in that situation and you're like, I didn't understand at all. And I, now I know why I'm running into the wall in the middle of the night. Cause I thought it was a doorway and I don't even remember what my home looks like. Um, <laughs> this is the same thing. We hear about it. We're like, oh, I understand. I've been looking at the downside. I need to now look for the few winners. And that's not what I was trained on, but it's the same tools. It's not that simple. It's deep mm -hmm. in your wiring. It's sort of, uh, it's like at a values basis subconsciously. So mm -hmm. it's interesting. We have all the bits and pieces, but it's like we're, we're switched in one polarity and they're switched in the other. And it's not mm -hmm. that simple that as smart as we are, we can't just be like, okay, I'll look the other way. It doesn't work mm -hmm. that way. It's it's a much deeper change. Yeah, I, and I was reflecting on this, and then I, I thought about what it means about terms of comp. And now I'm talking about innovation more in the terms of product creation inside traditional carriers. So creating new products uh, or collaborating with, let's say, MGA ideas or, or insurance vehicles that you're providing capacity before. Do you think there's something wrong in the way that not wrong, I suppose, backwards looking, but as we start to move into this world where actually a lot of the best ideas are going to come from outside parties and collaboration and potentially the, the sort of huge uncapped opportunities in insurance are going to be new ideas that we don't currently underwrite or don't currently have products for. Do we reward in, in the wrong way? Because currently if you're an underwriter or an underwriting leader, exactly that, you run your book studiously and you, you're trying to improve your loss ratio and you're trying to run a very sort of um profitable book under the those guidelines but when you look at things like new ventures and, and new opportunities new products if they sit within your product line we're not really rewarding those people for taking the true risk yeah um so do we have to sort of change probably that culture and, and that reward structure to really get that on board yeah i i think so um you know we we are an industry where any new effort, frankly, is going to be a dog for some time. Mm -hmm. um, small books are yeah. lumpy and lossy. And if they're not, it's just luck or the losses haven't developed yet. They will be soon enough. It's very hard to smooth out a couple of limit losses on a you know small book. Like one limit loss of five mil on an $8 million business, you're in the hole. No matter, like, I don't care how little you're paying in commission or how little you pay your people. There's no way you're profitable in that book. And I've seen it. I've seen small books that, you know, writing at an 800% plus combined ratio, it happens. But that's not the point of the business. It is to build it to something. But you have to be willing to sit through 
that difficult period. And um, it's, I mean, it's the same thing we were just talking about. It's not how we're wired. And so if you're not willing as a leader to put the right structures in place, rewards and evaluation and otherwise, you're never going to get the willingness to invest in a new product, a new market segment, a new approach, what have you, because there's going to be some betting in period, either because the losses will just need to develop and the book will need to grow to scale where it smooths itself out, assuming it's a good business that you're writing right, which is a different question. Um, but if not, at least you're making some investment that's going to be upfront expensive and you will not have had the cash flow and the profitability yet to deal with that investment. So you're going to take lumps for a few years just on a, you know, on a return basis. If you're not set up to deal with that explicitly or implicitly, your people won't support it because why, why would they, you know, it's, it's the old fallacy of like paying for X and expecting Y, um, you're disincenting your people from doing that. I, I had the benefit of working for an incredible carrier for a number of years, running claims for them. And we talked about there were pieces of our business that we referred to as bets. And that had a different section of our business plan, a different section of our finances. Of course, we looked at everything in aggregate, but then we broke them out. And we said on our mature businesses or at scale businesses, here's how they're performing. And then we have our bets. And Google has done this with the with the 20% stuff. And I know they moved backwards on some of that, but you see that where some businesses are like, look, if we don't carve out an ability to innovate and evolve and try, then what we're saying is, regardless of what we state publicly, our actual strategy is cash cow. Like we're just here to get the cash out of what we already have, what we inherited from someone else. And like, if you wanna be a trust fund baby of a business, go for it. That's perfectly fine. That's your strategy. But let's be honest about that. Because I've also seen carriers that in practice are living that way, but they talk about innovation, they're putting money into it, and they're holding people responsible for it, yet they're not actually empowering them to chase it. And so then it's like you have the best of both worlds. I always say, you can't claim you're broke and go buy a Porsche. Like you, I'm not going to allow that. You got to choose a lane here. And that's exactly what, what goes on. So if you actually want to just milk your business, that's okay. That's a strategy, but let's be honest about it. If you actually care about growth and innovation and opportunity, that's okay too. There may be some downside to it. There is risk in that. And you must structure your compensation, the way you look at people, the way your business is built in a way that supports them actually going after that. That's... This is back to those rational decisions, right? It's irrational to do it any other way. And we see that yeah. all the time. It's talking out of both sides of your mouth. Yeah. I mean, that, 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 the, um, if you think about it, a lot, a lot of, um, a lot of underwriting, uh, compensation is, for example, uh, salary is X, and then you can get 100% of X maximum bonus. And then every performance against that chips away at that 100%. Yeah. So we even operate our bonus structures in the same way a portfolio does in that the, the most you can get is already kind of known ahead of time. Whereas you flip that on a VC, they get carry and they get carry on their portfolio performance and it, and it yeah. doesn't get, it's not limited to anything. And so there's there's a meeting of cultures there that, that, that we need to square the circle on. Um, uh, Brian, I could talk to you forever and, and uh, we quite often get the opportunity to do that face to face, but 
it's a it's a really exciting premise for a book and and uh thank you for writing it i think it's i think it's a book that needs to be written about so um when does the book come out how can people access it we'll make sure we get that information in there yeah so the official launch date will be june 8th uh mm -hmm. 2023 so this year um it's uh, less than a month away from from recording this i'm very excited and it's uh, actually available now for pre-order um, at, at Amazon. Um, and, um, that's probably the easiest place for people to find it. If you want to learn more, they can go to future of insurance.com slash three, the number three, because it's the third volume and, uh, you know, a little bit of info on the book, a couple of links to pre-order, but whatever country you're in, go to your local Amazon and, uh, and it's there print Kindle audible, even hardcover, which wow. it always amazes me that people buy my books in hardcover. I'm like, you're really committing to owning my book. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> I, I must admit I won't do that but uh, yeah, I, no, but, okay. I, but I will read it I will read it so uh, and the only reason I haven't read it good people listening in is because I only got it three days ago and uh, you know I haven't had time so um, but no I'm looking forward to reading it Brian thank you pleasure as always um, really appreciate you being the guest on the Leadership and Insurance podcast thanks so much Alex